Episode 1 Truth or Dare Truth According to the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, chronic pain is a frequent condition affecting over 50 million Americans, or greater than 20% of the U.S. adult population. Chronic pain is recognized as pain that persists past the normal healing time of three months, or recurs for more than three to six months. High-impact chronic pain is more severe chronic pain that often limits work, school, or life activities and affects approximately 18 million Americans, which is about 7% of U.S. adults. Chronic pain can occur almost anywhere on the body and can be intermittent or steady and range from mild to severe. It can begin without any obvious cause, though, for many, it begins after an injury or due to a health condition. Chronic pain can present in different forms, such as throbbing, shooting, burning, stinging, a dull ache, soreness, or stiffness. It can cause a loss of appetite, vomiting, fatigue, or weakness, and can also cause trouble sleeping and mood changes. In fact, many who live with chronic pain also experience anger, depression, and anxiety, as well as thoughts of suicide. In 2011, the Institute of Medicine estimated that the annual cost to society of chronic pain, including postoperative pain, was $560 to $635 billion based on estimated healthcare expenditures and costs of lost productivity. Truth. Inadequate treatment of chronic pain is associated with reduced employment, increased absence from work, increased functional limitations, disability retirement, reduced household income, worsened mental health, increased use of healthcare resources, poor overall recovery from surgery, increased mortality, impaired cognitive function, and brain atrophy. Inadequate pain relief after surgery is associated with an increase in length of hospital stay, readmission rates, and time to ambulation. On the other hand, adequate treatment of pain has been associated with improvements in activities of daily living, reduced depression or improved mood, reduced fatigue, improved sleep, improved level of function, increased ability to work, increased enjoyment of life, and improved quality of life. In light of these facts, many individuals and institutions recognize chronic pain as a public health challenge and are calling for the issue of chronic pain to be taken more seriously. The NIH states that chronic pain should receive greater attention as a health priority because adequate pain treatment is a human right and it is the duty of any healthcare system to provide it. Many think this should go without saying. However, the issue of chronic pain and the prescription drugs used to treat it, namely opioids, are embedded in controversy and remain in the throes of a heated and passionate debate between the individuals who genuinely need these strong opioids to function 
and the federal and state regulatory bodies who limit or deny their access to these patients. Meet Maureen. Maureen is an intractable pain patient, or IPP, living with chronic pain for over five years. Maureen, truth or dare? Truth. How old are you? I'm 52 years old. What type of chronic pain do you experience? I experience lower back pain as a result of my spine collapsing. How has your pain impacted your life and daily activities? My career is gone. For years, I was basically bedridden. I mean, thank God I could walk to the bathroom. Um, I could almost not bathe myself. Like, I could literally take a shower, but I couldn't blow dry my hair. The pain was so overwhelming, I had to lay down. Um, so I cut my hair long so I could put it up in a ponytail. I stopped wearing clothes. I started wearing these dresses that were sort of wrinkle-resistant, and so I could get in and out of bed seamlessly if I had to, and people wouldn't necessarily know that I was bedridden. I know that's insane in a little bit of a way, like, who cares if they know, but I just, I didn't want to look like a wreck all the time, and it was too hard to get in and out of pajamas all the time, so I had to, like, orchestrate some kind of way to function. Uh, with this severe problem. So everything went away. My ability to garden went away. My ability to work went away. My ability to be a wife went away. Um, I somehow, we, we got a foster child just at my worst point, just um, two months after uh, my back broke and I was home on leave. And I was able to figure that out. And in a way, I think it saved my life because it gave me purpose. Um, I would read to him in bed, and I would teach him how to read in bed, <laughs> and I would um, patch together my uptime before his school and after his school, and then we would read together in bed or watch TV or have snuggle time, and then I would get up and help him get ready for bed, and we would start our day like that, and so I kind of hobbled together uh, a life, even though my life that I had known had gone away. Um, and in this way, it kept my mind busy. I wasn't focusing on what was going on with me. I wasn't feeling sorry for myself. I was able to go on, but very differently than I had been before. Do you take pain medication to manage your pain? Yes, I absolutely do. Um, and that also saved my life. Um, I don't know how I would have survived without it, and I think for a long time even I was under-medicated because of the amount of time I spent in bed, um, and so because of that I also sort of lived on an ice machine for a long time, but um, yes, pain opioids, um, narcotics, painkillers, whatever you want to call them, they have always been a tool that we have used to keep my um, pain under control. Um, and even that, it's really been an uphill battle. So uh, that, and, it, and I'm still on them, even though I've come off some of them because we've um, put in two spinal cord stimulators in my back and I've had two spinal fusions and a number of injections. Um, all of that sort of works in concert to give me what, what I've got today, which is I, I can do a, a ton more than I did even two years ago. 
still not as much as I did, you know, when I was normal, but um, I have much more uptime and not constantly running into the bed. I can shower and blow dry my hair. I can do laundry and do half hour of gardening. I can um, sometimes cook dinner for my family, but I can certainly in the mornings go grocery shopping once a week. Um, so none of that would be possible if I wasn't on the um, opioids that I'm on today. According to the Journal of the American Medical Association, studies have found that reducing pain relievers is associated with an increased risk of overdose and suicide. What's your opinion on this? I think if you if you uh, put somebody in a prison of pain, um, that they will eventually. I, I know, uh, to speak completely frankly, I had an exit plan. If, if the war on opioids was going to come to my doorstep and I could barely get out of bed or make it through the day on the amount of medicine I had, uh, or if I could not get better, if my quality of life could not get better through the surgeries and I was stuck in that amount of pain, I didn't, I didn't want to live like that anymore. So, yes, I think that putting people in constant pain and keeping them there when we have the technology and the resources to alleviate that pain for no other reason other than ignorance of you know, the actual reality is is cruel and inhumane. Pain patients across America share Maureen's sentiment. And it's this type of treatment, undertreatment or mistreatment, they say, that is the cause of fear, anger and despair among the pain community and its advocates. Barbie is one of them. Barbie is a 48-year-old former athlete and dancer and has been living with intractable pain for over 20 years. Hi, Barbie. Hi. Barbie, truth or dare? Truth. What type of chronic pain do you experience? Well, I have multiple diagnoses. Uh, The worst one for me is reflectomythetic dystrophy. And that is reflex is anything in your body that's automatic goes haywire. Like your blinking, your GI system, your internal organs, all of that goes haywire. Sympathetic is your nervous system. For me, it's like having lighter, lighter fluid put into my veins. It catches me on fire and it's very difficult to put out. And that's where the pain comes from. And the dystrophy is the loss of muscle and bone. And we say RSD for short. Uh, and I spent about seven years in a wheelchair and bedbound because uh, this is attacking my body so hard. And I also um, have a genetic form of breast cancer and gone through that treatment. And I also had um, endometriosis and myrolepsy and migraines uh, that also attack my body. What was your life like before you began experiencing pain? Before I was experiencing the pain, my life was a dream. I was living my dream life, and I had worked since I was four years old to be a cheerleader and to be a dancer, and I did private lessons. I did competitive cheerleading, dance, gymnastics. In high school, I actually lettered in gymnastics and cheerleading, and I went through the Girl, the Girl Scout system. So I started at Brownies and went all the way through Cadets, and for those who don't know, um, Cadets is like a, being an Eagle Scout for Boy Scouts, but people are more familiar with, with the 
guy side of it. So, um, yeah, I became a cadet, and I um, also ran track team and played soccer. I did beauty pageants. I was Miss Virginia. I did modeling, and I was just living my life. And I graduated college in four years, even with a learning disability. I did grow up with a learning disability, and that's why my parents put me into so much physical activity and programs so that I could better my coordination, uh, hand-eye coordination, and that type of thing. And then I graduated college in four years, which was a feat because my elementary school principal told me I wouldn't even graduate high school and not to even think about going to college. And I was living my dream life uh, straight out of college. I started my own cheer and dance training company. I had gotten married months after that. And I was married for 10 years until I got RSC. And um, even with that, going through endometriosis, my husband kind of understood. But when I got RSD, it was, uh, it hit me on, on a big magnitude. And it was even worse um, between us um, than endometriosis was. And neither of us understood it. It's a rare disease. And um, at least people had heard of endometriosis. With RSD, no one had heard of it. So my whole life crashed around me. Um, in my business, I tried to hold on. I was the head cheer and dance training uh, coach, and I had a cheer and dance training business. Um, we also held scholarship competitions and helped other student athletes go to college on cheer and dance scholarships, and I lost all of that. I lost my marriage. I lost the ability to drive. I lost all my freedoms. I uh, went from riding around in limousines and private jets to food stamps and not knowing where I was going to live next and having to go through the health system with a rare disease that couldn't be diagnosed for a while and losing my friends and family and everybody around me all at the same time and having to go and build all of that back. Many pain patients say that there have been times throughout their lives when others did not believe them when they said they were in pain. Has that ever been your experience? Were the people around you, the ones you worked with, and your loved ones supportive of you in your ordeal? Not really. People didn't understand. I was a, a coach at university, and I didn't even understand. Um, with endometriosis, as I said before, um, I had to take some time off work, and um, they would say, you know, you need to be at the games. You need to be at practice. This is your job. You're supposed to be here. And they kind of put that pressure on me with endometriosis. Then when I had RSD, I still had all of that struggle trying to figure out this, um, the, the, uh, the condition that I was living with as well as keep coaching properly. So they definitely didn't understand. These, these are your friends and your support system. And, and if they don't believe you or, or they don't understand and they just tell you, tell you to keep pushing through because they don't understand what you're trying to push through, um, it can be really frustrating. Many in the pain community say that a separate crisis is being created as chronic pain patients are losing their pain care in the name of an opioid crisis that has nothing to do with prescription opioids or the patients who are prescribed these opioids from their doctors. They also say that pain patients and their providers are being used as scapegoats for the never-ending war on drugs. And many of these patients are falling victim to the streets where they are being forced to go to find some sort of pain relief. Do you agree? 
I do agree. Illegal fentanyl is about 600 times more potent than prescription. And, you know, no wonder people are overdosing because when you get your medications cut off, many of them turn to the streets and that, you know, they were taking their medications and they felt it was safe and they knew what was in it. And now they're going to the streets and getting medications. The addicts would, but they're not addicted. They just need some pain care. And they're taking something that's 600 times more potent than the medication with the same name as the prescription. Michael, who's been living with chronic pain for over four years, tells a similar anecdote. Michael, a 63-year-old Air Force veteran, suffers from musculoskeletal issues with both of his hips and knees and is part of a pain support group. As part of this group, Michael frequently hears other veterans tell stories of losing their medications and or doctors. Michael, is it true that some of your support group peers have resorted to the streets to find adequate pain relief? Yes, that, that is a true statement. Um, I know a lot of veterans with some levels of disabilities just through my service. And then uh, I'm a member of a couple of veterans VA support groups. And um, at least now for at least three years, and I'm aware of things are just going in the wrong direction. Um, I know the VA has pretty much, and some veterans are restricted to getting their medical services at the VA, they've pretty much eliminated all opioids whatsoever. Um, and then on the VA support groups, it's uh, the messages are getting even worse. There's um, a lot of people have just reported, you know, they've been on uh, annexed opioids for their chronic pain for a long time, and then just new VA edicts or new administration, and they just said, well, we're either going to taper you off or even worse, we cut quick cold turkey. And some vets I'm seeing have to physically move to, to another VA just to see if they can get any help and assistance. But either that or with people like me that go through uh, TRICARE and such, I still choose more doctors, but I even haven't been able to find a primary care doctor that will work with me for more than a year. And a lot of veterans are reporting they just it cannot get any relief. Their doctors are all scared or they closed up shops, scared of the government. And, uh, and I, almost like every week on our support group, there's, there's another vet that says, man, I just, I, I'm going out on the streets and I'm gambling my life because I, it's the only way I can uh, manage. So it's, um, it's, it's a very tenuous situation for an awful lot of uh, disabled vets. Let's talk to Tom, another veteran. If I had to place my bets on who would choose Dare in this game, Tom would be the guy. Tom was on the high school football team, took martial arts, and was in the military ground forces and infantry. But those were his early days, the days before he began to experience serious chronic pain. Tom is 66 years old now and has been in chronic pain for over 25 years. Tom's not in a daring mood today, so let's shoot straight for the truth. How did your pain come about? So I did a lot of things that injured my back. Uh, I have had uh, surgery basically rebuilding my lumbar spine. I've had both hips replaced. There's a lot going on. Now that you're living with pain, Take us through a typical day with you. I get up in the morning around 
take care of a couple of animals, um, make something to eat, some coffee and so forth, and start the day, um, look at the mail, emails and uh, things that I have to do. Um, sometimes if, if it's been a bad night, I may have to lay back down um, and rest a bit. And I do that throughout the day. I have to stop and rest from time to time. Um, depending on when I have uh, meetings or uh, different things that I have to do for my work, um, I will focus my energy around that time and then I will leave time afterwards knowing that I'm going to have to uh, recover basically from that. Some of that is that ME as well as the pain, but um, I try and keep my uh, meetings and, and phone and video conferences and so forth as close to the middle of the day as possible. Uh, that's the easiest for me. It gets harder throughout the day in terms of pain severity. But, you know, I, I, if somebody has to meet at 4.30 or 5, then I will meet with them then. Uh, I, I try to do what I have to do uh, as much as I can. What happens when you don't have your pain medicine? Are you able to function? No. There was one point several years ago when uh, my prescription was changed. There was a, you know, a very small difference in milligram, but it came from a different factory. And as soon as I started taking it, I could tell it wasn't working. And I tried to contact the physician to tell them, I will bring all the pills in so to count them and please give me a prescription for the old or something, but this is not working. It took a few days to get through. Um, the uh, doctor's nurse was saying, uh, he's busy, he can't talk, and I was insisting that this was a crisis. I had about a week and a half of no medication virtually, and it was, um, it was really hellacious. It was awful. And I'm, I'm not somebody who uh, is very emotional outwardly in public, but I was in tears. I couldn't, uh, could barely get up after a while. And uh, the pain was just ridiculously severe. And if I wouldn't have been able to find an old prescription that I had buried in a drawer somewhere, which is what I ended up taking for the next three weeks, I don't know what I would have done. I think that's something that people don't really understand. When, when they use the word pain and chronic pain, they're not talking about the same pain that people who have what they call chronic pain. You know, people have different kinds of pain. They might have a pulled muscle. They might have a muscle spasm. They might have the different things that you know normal people have normally. They'll have headaches. 
take a couple pills, it goes away, it's fine, or treat it for a couple of days. That's nothing like this in terms of the severity, in terms of how much of your life it takes up. Um, and, and, you know, that, that one to ten thing of how much pain are you in is, is really difficult for most of us because, for one thing, it's, it, it's not a reliable measure. One person's eight is another person's six, and, you know, but... At any rate, it's it's just very frustrating because other people who will make light of it don't understand what we're talking about when we talk about pain. Um, and consequently, they can't judge very well what we're dealing with and the whole situation around the opioids. Um, People like me that have been taking this for years know very well what works and what doesn't work. I've tried everything from acupuncture to holistic medicine to exercise. I do physical therapy still, which is helpful, but the opioids are the only pain medication that are effective and, and have basically allowed me to keep going. Some say opioids make you feel high. Has this ever been your experience? The issue with opioids and making you feel high, that's a great question. For people who take opioids for pain, they don't get high. We don't take it to get high, and it doesn't make us high. What it does is it effectively handles, controls the pain. Have I ever felt woozy or what have you. I think early on when I started taking this, I might have felt that a little bit, but it's it's never been a, um, you know, I've never gotten high from it. Yeah, it's, it's just not an issue. And, and again, pain, people who are in serious pain are not trying to get high. They don't take it to get high. They take it to control the pain. Not only do we not get high, but the way that your brain works is that you adapt to that level of medication to where you can think and act and work with, with a pretty much a clear mind. I function very well. I, I don't want to talk about my job, but it's very demanding. And uh, because my brain and body have adapted to this medication, it doesn't affect me. It doesn't make me high. It doesn't make me goofy. It affects the pain, that's it. Effectively treating pain. This is the goal of physicians, pharmacists, and healthcare workers alike, and a burning desire of IPPs looking for one second, one minute one hour of relief from pain. Yet, this goal and wish is being blocked, resulting in a mountain of frustration, ruined lives and deaths, many by suicide across America. In the next episode, we'll talk about additional sources of trouble to the pain community 
which are the obstacles they are encountering to effective pain treatment. Specifically, the controversial CDC guideline on prescribing opioids for chronic pain, which is rendering patients silent as their objections and agony fall onto deaf ears. I'm Eve, and this is Chronic, the pain game.